June's Journey is a fascinating hidden object mystery gaming app where you'll play as June Parker, tasked with a daunting obligation, solve your sister's murder. Set in the 1920s, the era of glitz and glam, this family mystery is one for the ages. Everyone's a suspect until your investigation determines otherwise. The clues are all around you, hidden within tricky twists and turns. You'll collect detailed information about each character in your photo album where you'll comb over every detail. You can even join a detective's club to chat and play with others or against them in the detective's league. With hundreds of puzzles to solve, you should probably get started today. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. CBS News Face the Nation in 60 seconds. I'm a squeaky toy, and I've got one job, getting chomped on by this little ankle sniffer. So pardon me for feeling inept compared to Geico, who does so much more. Like, while I'm getting slobbered on, Geico is creating cool technology like their mobile app, which lets people pay their bills or file a claim. Plus, Geico is the fastest-growing auto insurer for the last 10 years. Is it too much for me to ask for one more feature? Fast and friendly claim service like Geico, maybe? Oh, great. I'm getting buried again. Geico. Expect great savings and a whole lot more. Today on Face the Nation, teenagers at a Florida school map out a new national movement to curb gun violence. We are going to be kids that you read about in textbooks, not because we are going to be another statistic about mass shootings in America, but because we are going to be the last mass shooting. Can they change the political dynamic? We'll talk to five students from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School about their plans to march on Washington and hold a national day of protest. And after the FBI admits it failed to follow through on warnings about the suspected shooter, President Trump slams the agency for wasting time trying to prove his campaign colluded with Russia. This as special prosecutor Robert Mueller hands down a blockbuster indictment against 13 Russian nationals, saying they communicated with unwitting individuals associated with the Trump campaign to coordinate political activities. Russian officials call the indictments blabber and a fantasy. Is the U.S. doing enough to safeguard the next election? We'll talk to the head of the House Oversight Committee, Republican Trey Gowdy, plus Delaware Democrat Chris Coons and South Carolina Republican Tim Scott. Hillary Clinton's campaign chairman, John Podesta, will be here too. Plus, congressional Republicans are retiring in record numbers. We sat down with four of them. Florida's Ileana Rose Leighton, California's Ed Royce, Pennsylvania's Charlie Dent, and Arizona Senator Jeff Flake to find out why they're leaving. Senator, when you talk about immigration, mass violence, opioids, has Congress lost its ability to solve big problems? You know, it'd be hard to argue that we haven't. It's all ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. I'm Nancy Cordes. We've got a lot of news to get to today, but we're going to begin with those students at Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. They're channeling their anguish into what they hope will be a new national movement. They rallied yesterday just a few miles from the scene of the massacre that took 17 lives. We spoke with five of them just moments ago. We're going to be doing a march in March on Washington. Students all over the country are going to be joining us because the adults have let us down. The people that we put into power who should be working for us, they have us working for them. And that's pitiful. That's pathetic. 
and we have to do the dirty work here, and we're going to do the dirty work. We are going to shoulder this heavy burden, and we are going to do it well. From here on, we are creating a badge of shame for any politicians who are accepting money from the NRA. It is a special interest group that has most certainly not our best interests in mind, and this cannot be the normal. This can be changed, and it will be changed. And anybody who tells you that it can't is buying into the facade that's being created by the people who have our blood on their hands. We'll have a lot more of that interview coming up later in the broadcast. But right now, we turn to Congressman Trey Gowdy, the head of the House Oversight Committee, who is in Greenville, South Carolina, this morning. Uh, Mr. Chairman, good morning. What do you say to these kids who argue that politicians like you who take money from the NRA have blood on their hands? Uh, well, the first thing I would say to to those children and my own um, is I'm sorry that you have grown up in, in a generation that has only known violence and there is no sanctuary. There is no place of refuge. The schools aren't safe. The churches aren't safe. The concerts. So I applaud their activism. I would encourage them to look at three components, uh, the shooter himself, the instrumentality, and then any any form of mitigation, whether it is magazine capacity, whether it is the speed with which the projectile is expelled. But, but you have to look at all three. You have to look at the shooter, um, and, and you have to look at the, the instrumentality by which that shooter is killing people. I applaud their activism, um, and, uh, and if I were them, I'd be as angry as they are. When you talk about instrumentality, are you suggesting that uh, weapons that can kill or injure many people in a short period of time should be more restricted than they are now? Um, well, you can certainly look at that, but of course, Nancy, some, some of the more uh, heinous mass killings we've had involve semi-automatic pistols. Um, and and I, I have had people, um, when I was a prosecutor, kill, kill with all manner of instrumentality, from shovels to bricks to rope to hands. You're equally dead. Um, so but you can't, I, but you whether can't it's kill a semi-automatic pistol... Wait a minute, Congressman. In... Las Vegas, the shooter was able to injure 500 people in minutes. You can't do that with a shovel or a brick. Uh, no, you cannot. Um, and, and that's why I say you should look at the instrumentality and, 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 and magazine capacity and the speed with which the projectiles, including bump stocks. But you also have to look at the shooter. And Nancy, in, in, in almost half the instances of mass shootings, there was notice provided uh, to someone that the person was going to do what, what he ultimately did. In school shootings, mm -hmm. almost 80% of the time there was notice provided. So you have to look at all of it. If you only look at the instrumentality and you don't look at the person who's pulling the, the trigger, then I think you're doing a disservice mm -hmm. uh, to everyone who wants to see an end to, to killings, including mass killings. So I think what these kids are saying is we have looked at all of these things. We just haven't done anything. Why, for example, hasn't Congress taken action on bump stocks? This is something that both sides agree should be curtailed. Um, if you're saying that, uh, you know, we need to make it easier for law enforcement to step in when someone exhibits symptoms of, of violence, why don't we make it easier for them to do that? Uh, well, you could. You could impose a duty to disclose. We have it in other categories of law. You could impose a, a, a lawful duty to disclose if, if you hear that someone is planning to do something. In, in the shooting in Florida, you didn't need a duty to disclose. People did come forward and, and put the FBI on notice. You know, bump stocks turn, turn semi-automatic weapons into fully automatic weapons. So fully automatic weapons are already illegal. So I, I, I am fine with doing away with any instrumentality 
that converts okay. a semi-automatic to a fully automatic. So you're a member but of Nancy, leadership. When will we, we see a vote on that? I, I'm not a member of leadership, but, but I'm, I'm happy to ask them um, when and if we're going to see a vote. I don't know that it requires a vote of Congress. I think ATF could regulate bump stocks tomorrow. You're the chair of the House Government Oversight Committee, so I want to get your take on these 13 Russians who were indicted on Friday. Uh, You're a former prosecutor. What do these indictments tell us about how sophisticated this operation was and whether they're going to try it again? Well, they're definitely going to try it again, and I think what this indictment tells us is what some of us have known all along. Russia is not our friend. Russia has tried to subvert the fundamentals of our democracy for for those of us who supported Bob Mueller from day one and said, give him the time and the resources and the independence to do his job, um, this is his job. This is exactly what we wanted him to do. Um, I've known all along that Russia tried to subvert our 2016 election, and they're going to do the same thing in 2020 and every election thereafter, um, unless and until we do what the indictment said, which is we view this as America being the victim. In this particular instance, they used the Clinton campaign. They tried to disparage her campaign. Sure. Next cycle, it could be a Republican. But Americans are the victims of, of, of what Russia did. Not Republicans, not Democrats. All of us are victims. So then why hasn't Congress passed any legislation to safeguard our election? We have known about this Russian meddling now for about 18 months. You're right. Con- Congress doesn't regulate state elections. And Jay Johnson, um, whom I've been critical of in the past, um, tried to put the states on notice in the fall of 2016. Um, it didn't get a lot of media coverage because there was a, an Access Hollywood tape that came out that same day. So you're better able to speak well, from your line of work as to why what Jay Johnson uh, warned us of in the fall of 2016 didn't get much media coverage. But I don't think you want Congress regulating the 50 states and their well, election cycles. Sure, but you do have control, for example, over legislation that w- could require more disclosure from people on social media about who they are, who's backing them when they air ads online, for example. Yeah, and, and I had that conversation with the three media giants. You and I just got through discussing the Second Amendment. This is the First Amendment. I, I, I ask. Uh, Facebook, I asked Twitter, I, I asked all of them, how does a functioning democracy benefit from false information? Um, I, I, I can't imagine how we benefit from someone uh, perpetuating lies, but, but I got silent. So that's our First Amendment issue. Mm-hmm. When you begin to regulate uh, uh, information, and you, I happen to believe in something called the truth. I actually believe that certain things are true and not true. But I couldn't even get the media giants to agree to that. So that's a First Amendment issue. I would tell all my fellow citizens, be really skeptical of anything you read on social media and do your own independent research. Sounds like Americans are all going to have to get a lot more skeptical about what they see uh, on social media. Congressman Trey Gowdy of South Carolina, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Joining us now is Delaware Democrat Chris Coons. He sits on the Senate Judiciary and Foreign Relations Committees. Uh, Senator Coons, thanks so much for being with us. What's your biggest takeaway from these new indictments by Robert Mueller? The president says this shows point blank no collusion. The president says that, uh, and a lot of other folks, law enforcement leaders and observers say it neither proves nor disproves collusion. It shows the strength and the organization of the Russian campaign to interfere in 2016. 
It does show that three different Trump campaign officials were contacted by Russians, but they didn't realize they were Russians. But I'll remind you, Nancy, there was that famous June 9th meeting in Trump Tower where Donald Trump Jr. and several other senior campaign officials welcomed with open arms Russians who claimed they had dirt on Hillary Clinton. That hasn't yet been proven that there might have been collusion, but I think it's getting closer. What do you think the chances are that it actually did affect the outcome of the race? In a race that was this close, where moving 140, 150,000 votes in three states, one way or the other, could have changed the outcome, uh, it's hard to say that this didn't affect the outcome. Uh, it was an exceptionally close election. I'll remind you, one candidate won the popular vote, the other candidate won the electoral vote. Um, but it's not yet clear whether the Russians succeeded in actually changing votes. What's clear is that they spent millions and millions of dollars and had hundreds of people working in a troll farm in St. Petersburg to intentionally undermine one candidate, Hillary Clinton, and support another, Donald Trump. So then why aren't Democrats out there all the time banging the drum on this issue, pushing legislation to protect our electoral system? We are. As you know, I've introduced bipartisan legislation to try and protect special counsel Robert Mueller. I am concerned about the possibility that his investigation will be interfered with by the president. We just heard last week in front of the House Intelligence Committee from Donald Trump's intelligence leaders, his head of CIA, head of FBI, head of the, direct, the director of national intelligence. We can expect the Russians to do this again. We should be taking action against Russian interference in our election. Are we taking enough? We aren't. The most important thing the president should have done by now is to use the new sanctions authority that the Senate gave him by a vote of 98 to 2 last year to push back on Russia and impose some pain, some costs for having interfered with our election. So far, no overt sanctions have been imposed, no real actions been taken. And you think that just emboldens the Russians? Absolutely. With someone like Putin, he's only going to stop when we stop him. Russian officials say that this is a purely a fantasy, in their words. So uh, should the U.S. be retaliating beyond sanctions in ways that we aren't right now? There are actions we should be taking to increase the pressure on Russia to back off. We should be engaging our European allies who have a commonality of interest with us in this. And we should be using the sanctions authorities that the Senate has given to President Trump. To me, the most maddening question is why is President Trump failing to act to protect our democracy when there is indisputable proof now that Russia interfered in our 2016 elections? Let's talk about this Florida shooting. Uh, given what we know right now, is it possible that legislation, any legislation, could have prevented the tragedy that we saw there? Possible, yes. Likely that that action will be taken in this Congress, no. And I have to say, Nancy, um, having heard the voices of other teenagers from Parkland whose uh, high school classmates were gunned down, it is um, heartbreaking. I am heartsick over the fact that we in Congress have failed to act to protect our teenagers, to protect schools and churches, to protect America's safe spaces from the scourge of gun violence. There are things we should do to make it harder for people with mental health problems, people who are convicted felons, people who have domestic violence convictions from easily getting guns. There are bipartisan bills in this Congress and the last one that have not been taken up and acted on. Has your party lost some of its drive on this issue? I mean, you talk about bipartisan legislation. Uh, you had a big breakthrough, it seemed, a couple of months ago after the shooting in Las Vegas. Democrats and Republicans co-sponsoring legislation to limit bump stocks, these devices that make semi-automatic weapons more lethal. But we haven't heard anything about that in months. Why hasn't your party kept the heat on? There have been efforts, but let's be blunt. 
one party controls the floor in the Senate and the House. The Republicans determine what's going to get a vote. So there's no word of optimism that you can offer to those students in Florida who Nancy, are pushing I, I, for legislation. I am usually a very optimistic person. I work tirelessly across the aisle. I am not optimistic that until there is real action by the American public to demand change in Congress, that we're going to see real action to confront gun violence out of this Congress. Senator Chris Coons of Delaware, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, Nancy. And we'll be back in a moment. Don't have time to keep up with the news? Try the CBS News Radio app on your iOS or Android device. You'll get the latest news as soon as you start it up. It's that easy. You can also listen to great programming like Face the Nation, Weekend Roundup, or the CBS Evening News. And good evening. Wall Street today signaled its approval of the tax cuts passed by the Republican-controlled Congress. You can even download them straight to your phone and listen later. It's all on the CBS News Radio app for iOS or Android. Download it today. We're back with Republican Senator Tim Scott. He is in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina this morning. Senator, good morning. Good morning, Nancy. Good to be with you. Uh, Senator, you heard from those students at the top of this broadcast, and you, I'm sure, understand the pain that they are going through because your constituents lived through uh, their own terrible shooting at a church in Charleston, South Carolina, a few years ago. Uh, But you have always pushed for fewer gun restrictions. Do you stand by that? I stand by the position I've always been in, and I'm not sure that I've been pushing for fewer gun restrictions. What I have pushed for is for us to use common sense on how to solve the problem. Remember that just a couple of years ago, uh, Charleston, South Carolina, Emanuel Church, nine murdered in church. I want to make sure that we can solve that problem. And when you look at core components that are missing, it seems to be we, the system, have not done the right job. In Charleston, the background checks could have prevented that person, Mr. Roof, from getting a weapon. In Sutherland Springs, Texas, the domestic violence incident, had that been reported, it could have prevented, perhaps, that situation from occurring. We all say, if you see something, say something. In Parkland community, we saw people reporting. There were 20 calls to the Sheriff's Department. They responded. The FBI received a legitimate, credible tip and it was not followed up upon. So what we've seen in three major atrocities is that the system that was in place simply was not followed. So my focus is not on having or not having a gun debate. We're going to have that. The students were very clear, March is coming, we're going to have that debate, and I look forward to participating in that conversation. But the reality of it is that three incidents could have been avoided, prevented, if the system itself had worked, I would not have gone to the so, funeral of my good friend Clemente Pinckney if the system had worked. And so we need to fix that. And unlike uh, my good friend, who I do appreciate, Senator Coons, I believe that we will get something done this year. Why haven't you gotten something done already, system. Senator? You've, you've co-sponsored uh, legislation to, to, to fix these background checks. Why hasn't it gone anywhere? Absolutely. Well, we are putting more pressure on our system and to include in the Senate to make sure that that legislation gets to the floor. Senator Grassley has been very clear, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, that he plans to bring that, that legislation up. It is bipartisan legislation supported from folks like Chris Murphy in Connecticut to myself in South Carolina. Mm-hmm. The reality of it is that we have a sense of urgency about getting this done, and I'm very hopeful that this is the time that we see this nation's leadership united 
to solve a problem that could have prevented atrocities. I think a lot of people are hopeful about that. I want to get your take on something that President Trump tweeted last night. He said, it's very sad that the FBI missed all of the many signals sent out by the Florida school shooter. This is not acceptable. They are spending too much time, the FBI, trying to prove Russian collusion with the Trump campaign. There is no collusion. Uh, I know he doesn't like the investigation, but is it fair to link it to the deaths of these children? I think we have to separate the issue without any question. The first issue is, in fact, that the FBI missed an opportunity to weigh in heavily and perhaps prevent something from happening. Mm -hmm. That is a tragedy that should be investigated. I believe that oversight in the House and the Senate will do so. A separate issue is how they spend their time and whether or not the time is well spent on this Russian situation. I will tell you that from my perspective that so many folks in the FBI are doing all that they can to keep us safe. The reality of it is that they are two separate issues. And so where do we go from here on the issue of uh, Russian meddling? You know, you've got 13 Russians who were indicted, but Congress has failed to act. And a lot of people would say that the administration has not taken this seriously because the president himself still does not seem to believe that Russia meddled in our election system. Well, there's there's no question. Uh, The Russians have done all that they can to meddle in our elections without any question in my mind or my heart. The question is, was it effective? And the answer is it was not effective. Well, we don't know that, Senator, right? We don't know whether it was effective or not. How can we know that? Well, so far, our intelligence agencies and the Mueller investigation have all come to the same conclusion so far that the impact that the Russians had their objective of meddling in our elections to change the outcome. So far, there is no evidence that suggests that it has been effective. So we're going to continue the investigation. I support Mr. Mueller moving forward in his investigation because I think it is very important for the American people to have a crystal clear perspective on whether or not the Russians' efforts were, in fact, impactful. With all due respect, the the special counsel has said that they can't make a conclusion about whether it was effective or not. But moving forward, South Carolinians go to the polls again in June. What has Congress done and what have you signed on to that can assure them that, you know, that these are going to be free and fair elections and that they won't be influenced by the Russians or other bad actors? That's a great question. uh, As you heard from my friend uh, Trey Gowdy earlier, the election process is by and large a state function. Uh, I believe that we have been sending very clear signs and the integrity of our system has proven to be very effective at this point and very good. There has been very, very few incidents of challenges at the ballot box based on the Russians' influence. The reality of it is that when you look at what they were attempting to do, it was to sow social discord in this nation and to use advertising as a mechanism to change voters' minds and to bring hostility and challenges between our races in this country. The polarization of this nation is a part of the Russian uh, objective. But there has been no evidence, none at all that they were impactful on the boxes. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. We really appreciate it. The controversy over White House security clearances may have moved off the front pages this week, but when we sat down with four retiring congressional Republicans, they had strong feelings about how the White House handled domestic abuse allegations against former Staff Secretary Rob Porter. 
Here are Arizona Senator Jeff Flake plus Pennsylvania Congressman Charlie Dent, Florida's Ileana Rose Leighton, and California's Ed Royce. When other countries see that this White House can't even get its story straight on something as simple as a security clearance, the rest of the world thinks what? Security clearances for people who have not passed uh, those, uh, those check marks. It's, it's just not, not the normal way that we should be uh, handling uh, classified information. So I think it's, it's sort of shocking when you see the list of all of the folks who've had access to sensitive documents who have not uh, been cleared in, in order to view them. I find it shocking. Should John Kelly step down? No, I don't think John Kelly should step down. I think uh, we are, we're in a process now where the Committee of Jurisdiction here is doing an investigation of just this issue. And I think you wait until you get the facts, and, and then you can move forward from that. Do you agree? Well, I think he ought to step before a microphone and uh, explain how this uh, latest situation came to be. Uh, I think uh, we do need a better explanation. But I think he can if, if he'll do it. It's bigger than one man yeah. anyway. We get another chief of staff, the problem continues. The White House, the White House uh, I, I think, completely mishandled this whole Porter situation. Uh, that said, prior to John Kelly uh, coming into the chief of staff's job, uh, the White House had been in pretty much uh, chaos and anarchy, and it was very dysfunctional. And so he did bring a, a, a great degree of uh, stability and order and discipline to the management of the White House until this recent episode. Uh, so I, at this moment, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to find out who would be the replacement before I'd call for him to step down. The rest of our conversation with those four members about why they're leaving Congress will air in our next half hour. Our next guest, John Podesta, was the chairman of Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign. His private emails were hacked and released publicly by Russian-backed entities during the campaign. Mr. Podesta, thank you so much for being with us. Nice to be back, Nancy. Uh, for anyone who voted for Hillary Clinton, these new indictments mean what? Well, look, it's uh, a tragedy for the American people, really. Uh, as uh, Mr. Mueller said in his indictment, this was uh, an act of information warfare against the United States, against our democracy. So I think it's uh, obviously disappointing to those of us who were on the receiving end of these uh, Russian active measures, but I think the real victims here are the American people because uh, that there was direct interference with our democratic institutions. The deputy attorney general was very careful on Friday to say that we don't know whether or not this operation swayed the election. You've had a lot of time to think about this. Where do you come down on that issue? Well, look, this was one part of a, uh, of a complex, active uh, interference in the measures. This didn't even deal with the hacking. This was only about uh, what was going on in the social media and the, and the uh, information campaign that was being done there. But there were 80 people, millions of dollars spent. <clears throat> and uh, as one of your previous uh, guests, Senator Coons, noted, uh, we won the popular vote by 3 million votes. Uh, they were pushing votes, just to give one example, to Jill Stein. Uh, her vote in Michigan, in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, was greater than the gap between uh Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in those states. So you can't prove that it did uh, affect the outcome, uh, but it certainly seems likely that it had some impact. But it does beg the question, how is it that these Russian operatives knew to focus on purple states like Michigan and Wisconsin and your campaign didn't? 
Well, of course, we spent a lot of time and energy and effort uh, in all those states. Hillary Clinton herself did not spend much time in those we, states. You know, we had uh, Tim Kaine was there, uh, Barack Obama was in, uh, and she spent enormous time in Pennsylvania and Michigan. Sure. Uh, and, uh, and we spent a lot of uh, effort. Uh, we had more uh, staff in Wisconsin than even President Obama had in 2012. But, but I think that begs the question. I think we, we focused on the places we thought were... Uh, Th- that were, you know, in contest, and and in uh, the end of the day, we fell short in those states. Uh, and I think that this active measures uh, effort by the Russians uh, could have tilted the election in uh, in Donald Trump's favor. But I think what the real issue is uh, is, uh, you know, how he's reacted to it. Uh, and in that context, if we're uh, if this is information warfare, uh, then I think he's the first draft dodger in the war. Mm-hmm. I mean, he has done. Nothing but tried to undermine the Mueller investigation. He hasn't implemented the sanctions that that was passed by the Congress and that he signed uh, in reaction to the uh, in, to the uh, uh, activities in the 2016 election. He's uh, we learned this week he's ordered no uh, effort to try to get the intelligence community to get together to try to prevent. Uh, further activities in the 2018 election. Why do you think that is? Do you think that it's because uh, to do so would be to admit that somehow the Russians might have influenced this election? Well, you know, I think that uh, it, it, <laughs> Mr. Trump's psyche is complicated, and people have uh, said a lot about uh, a, a lot about it. But he certainly can't uh, accept uh, that uh, this activity may have helped him, and I think he just. Uh, constantly tries to move the ball away, including what was, I think, really a despicable uh, tweet uh, about the fact that he's blaming uh, the FBI for investigating the Russia uh, investigation and somehow uh, relating that to the uh, tragic uh, uh, killings right. in Florida. But, uh, you know, I, who knows with, with Mr. Trump. But he's, he clearly, I think, has failed uh, in carrying out his duty as president of the United States, which is to protect our democracy. Midterm elections are coming up, and it's been reported that uh, Democrats are telling your former boss, Bill Clinton, that in light of the Me Too mo- movement, they, they think he should sit it out, he should be benched, and they're not looking for him to actively campaign for them. Is that true, and do you think that that's the right call? Look, I think, you know, he's... Uh, uh, remains, I, I think, a figure who is popular with a lot, a lot of Democrats across the country, and I think that uh, people are calling him, candidates are calling him and asking for advice. But whether he's going to be an active participant, I think that's not, uh, you know, really on the top of his mind right now. I think he's doing other things, and and uh, people make their own judgments about whether he can be helpful in the campaign. Do you think it's a good idea, very quickly, for him to sit it out? Well, you know, look, I think that th- that if I was. Uh, uh, advising a, a campaign and a candidate about what to do, I would I would sort of judge whether uh, he can be helpful. And I think some places he can be, and probably some places he's more of a lightning rod. All right. John Podesta, thank you so much, campaign chairman for Hillary Clinton. Midterm elections are always perilous for the party in power. And this year, a record number of Republicans have already decided not to run for re-election. Two dozen are retiring from the House and Senate, plus five are leaving to run for higher office. Why so many? Well, that's the question we put to four departing Republicans, including Ed Royce, who's one of 10 committee chairmen who have announced they're hanging it up. That's a lot of experience out the door. 
It is, and there's a, there's a debate, you know. I, I think we should look at maybe the length of our chairmanships, but at the, same, at the same time, I think these term limits are probably good from the standpoint of bringing in new blood, new ideas, and so that's, that's one of the things we weigh on the Republican side. Senator, when you left your House colleagues and went to the other side of the Capitol, I'm sure you intended to serve more than one term in the Senate. I always thought probably two terms, but uh, I'm kind of out of step with my party, and uh, it makes it very difficult to uh, have the positions that I have and, and uh, you know, win re-election in a Republican primary. So have you changed or has the party changed? I, I don't think I've changed that much, um, uh, but I do think the party has changed considerably. Do you all agree with that? Well, from my standpoint, I think that the party has always been a big tent party. I think there's room in the party for a lot of different viewpoints. Do you think that the tent is as big as it used to be? Uh, no, I don't, actually. I, I think what's happening in Congress is the political center is collapsing. But that's not true across the country. What I found is that uh, we have become enormously polarized here in Congress, and that polarization has led to a paralysis. I mean, the very simple, basic tasks of governing, just keeping the government open. But if folks like you leave, don't things just get worse? I think that part of the answer here, though, is for us to look at what we can do to change the fact that no longer do we really have the types of friendships across the aisle that we once had. But when you That's important. At, but when you yes. look at the, uh, the future of the Republican Party, I think that we would be foolish to not see that we're heading into trouble. Uh, very few women are running for, uh, on the Republican Party ticket for office. Far greater numbers of women are identifying themselves as being in the Democratic Party. Uh, minorities uh, that have always been traditionally a, 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 a group that we should really be going after. I don't see that we really have a, a recruiting program that's active uh, to get minorities involved in our party. So the growth of our party, it seems to be very limited in a specific group, whereas the demographics of our great country is changing greatly. And when you look ahead, what's our future going to be? Are we going to end up a marginalized party? I think that we need to look toward the future and we need to have the policies that attract millennials, women, and minorities. I don't see that. Well, you know, people have been sounding that alarm bell within the party for a while, and you're doing pretty well right now. You've got the White House, the House, and the Senate. So what incentive is there to change? There's a, uh, there's a fundamental, I think there's a fundamental pre uh, political realignment happening in our country. You look at where the Democrats are, they, they've gone kind of full Bernie. Bernie has more or less taken over their party, even though he didn't win the nomination. On the, our side, you know, Donald Trump took over the Republican Party. And I, I do think that this political ground is shifting under our feet. Nobody knows quite how it will settle. And in, in our party, a lot of members have adjusted their politics to suit the president. You know, it's really about loyalty to the man uh, more than it is about any set of uh, given principles or ideals. And I think that's what's really changed. I would agree with that. And I agree with Eliana in terms of where the Republican Party is going and the danger. Uh, if you look uh, every four years, every presidential election cycle, we are, as a country, 2% uh, less white. Uh, you know, voters of color, uh, it's, it's changing that way. And, and uh, I don't think that we've made enough of an effort as Republicans to appeal across a broader electorate. And, and then with young people as well, given some of the positions and the behavior that the president has exhibited, uh, I think it makes it very difficult for young people to identify with the Republican Party. 
I think they've been walking away from the party in general. I think they're at a dead sprint right now, and, and we've got to change that. We don't need to change our principles. We don't need to change what we stand for. But like Charlie said, not every vote is a loyalty vote, whether you're for or against the, the president. And, and that's how it's framed all the time. You've got to be a, a loyal soldier. I, I don't think people feel as comfortable, the, the moderate Republicans feel as comfortable with this kind of tone. Well, on this issue, though, if you think about individually, Eliana, what we're doing, uh, we have recruited uh, female candidates, Asian candidates, Hispanic candidates. You've helped elect three now. You've got three members who are Hispanic uh, that I know you've played a large role in their elections. Uh, I, I think we'll continue in this vein. But she is pro-immigration reform, pro-hiking the minimum wage, uh, pro-same-sex marriage. Could you have gotten elected in a Republican primary for the first time now? I think so. It depends a lot on the, the personality of the candidate and, and getting back to what the Republican Party used to be, where we were accepting of all types. And, and yes, we're doing a, a pretty good job in recruiting candidates at the local level, at the state level. But when you look at the makeup of the Democratic Party here in Congress, um, I don't see those Asian women and, and those minority women serving in the, in the, in the House GOP or in the Senate GOP. I mean, that's the reality. Maybe we're, our farm team is slowly coming up, but uh, we used to be more accepting of having moderate positions, and now, now it's getting harder. It starts at the top. I agree with that. Ca- candidates matter, and we have a responsibility to do our bit. But at the top, you know, when the president makes incendiary comments on Hispanics, uh, Muslims, women, you know, the, the Charlottesville situation and others, you know, I think it... It, it narrows our appeal, and I, I, I do believe that we have to be much, much broader in our, our, our thinking and, uh, and show that we want, the, that the welcome mat is actually out and that we want everybody in. It's, it's like Charlie said, it's, it's become kind of a loyalty test to the man rather than to principles. And then the problem is uh, if you, as a candidate or as an elected official, align yourself to a person rather than principle, then you're, you're wedded to that person wherever he or she goes, and, and, uh, and that's dangerous. It really is. And, and I, I see that a big problem for the party going forward. And you've got the uh, Freedom Caucus, this group of conservatives, telling the Speaker of the House, your leadership position is at risk if you stray too far from where we want to be on immigration. You know, you know I've never supported these types of tactics. Trying... To sack your own quarterback is not a strategy, frankly, that uh, uh, usually when you're working as a team is going to lead to success, right? Threats uh, usually don't lead to success. They've had what, some success. What would lead to success, I, 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 don't, I don't think that's successful in terms of getting legislation into, into effect. Senator, when you talk about immigration, mass violence, opioids, has Congress lost its ability to solve big problems? You know, it'd be hard to argue that we haven't. Um, you know, in the, in the Senate, we, we have a 60-vote requirement for most legislation, and we've had a hard time uh, coming together. There are things that we should on, on the gun issue, uh, obviously the bump stocks, uh, 
no fly, no buy, uh, those kind of things. There's broad consensus in the country, certainly, and, and there should be, and I hope that we can move legislation like that. There's no reason we shouldn't be able to. But on, on immigration, you look at the, the president's position and what he says on Monday may be different than what he says on Wednesday and may be different on Friday. So it's very hard, I think, for, for leaders on, on DACA, on, on Dreamers like Jeff Flake, to, to figure out a way forward. It's schizophrenic what's coming out of the White House in terms of policy on immigration and Dreamers. And we'll be right back with those high school students who are crafting a plan to take on Washington. Like what you're hearing? Get even more great content from CBS News Radio podcasts. Listen to TV broadcasts like CBS Evening News and Face the Nation on demand. I'm John Dickerson. And don't miss The Takeout, a politics, policy, and pop culture podcast from CBS News Chief White House Correspondent Major Garrett. We have our first member of the Trump administration cabinet at our table, Mick Mulvaney. Will you ask the wrong people first? Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Google Play. Joining me now are five students from Parkland, Florida, who attend Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. They are David Hogg, Alex Wind, and Emma Gonzalez, plus Cameron Kasky and Jacqueline Corrin. Thanks so much to all of you for joining me. And Cameron, I'll start with you. You say the adults have let you down. Well, the adults in office have let us down, absolutely. And fortunately, we have a lot of support from the older generations here. But what we're trying to do here at March for Our Lives is say the adult politicians have been playing around while my generation has been losing our lives. If you see how they treat each other in the office, if you see the nasty, dirty things going on with them, it's, it's sad to think that that's what they're doing while 17 people are being slaughtered and gunned down only yards away from where we're sitting right now. And March for Our Lives has support from everybody. And at the end of the day, this isn't a red and blue thing. This isn't Democrats and Republicans. This is about everybody and how we are begging for our lives and we are getting support, but we need to make real change here. And that's exactly what we're going to do. So, Emma, what is the plan? You say you want to spark a national movement. It's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to actually make it happen. What are you going to do? Well, what we have set up right now, we have a website, March for Our Lives. We're going to be doing a march in March on Washington where we get students all over the country are going to be joining us. These kids are going to make this difference because the adults let us down and... At this point, I don't even know if the, the adults in power who are funded by the NRA, I don't even think we need them anymore because they're going to be gone by midterm election. There's, there's barely any time for them to save their skins. And if they don't turn around right now and state their open support for this movement, they're going to be left behind because you are either with us or against us at this point. We are giving a lot of the politicians that we feel neglected by a clean slate because that's the past and we understand that. But... From here on, we are creating a badge of shame for any politicians who are accepting money from the NRA. It is a special interest group that has most certainly not our best interests in mind, and this cannot be the normal. This can be changed, and it will be changed. And anybody who tells you that it can't is buying into the facade that's being created by the people who have our blood on their hands. David, 
a lot of people saw the reporting that you did from inside the school while the shooting was taking place, and I'm uh, truly sorry that, that all of you had to live through that. But I want to read to you what President Trump said last night. He said that it's actually the Democrats that have let you down because they didn't pass legislation when they controlled Congress. Does he have a point? President Trump, you control the House of Representatives, you control the Senate, and you control the executive. You haven't taken a single bill for mental health care or gun control and passed it. And that's pathetic. We've seen a government shutdown. We've seen tax reform, but nothing to save our children's lives. Are you kidding me? You think now is the time to focus on the past and not the future to prevent the death of thousands of other children? You sicken me. So what kinds of laws do all of you think should be on the books that aren't right now? Well, what I think needs to be on the books right now that isn't is literally any law that's from either side of the political spectrum. If you're a Republican that supports mental health care, we want you out there making your voice heard because that's just as important as gun control or gun safety laws at this point because Democrats also want gun safety rules and we can't get into any more debates. We need discussion. We've had the debates and people have died as a result. Children have died and will continue to if we don't stop now and look at both sides of this because we can't wait around any longer. Children are dying as a result, and we need to take action. And I call on President Trump and the Republican-controlled House and Senate and executive branch to work together, get some bills passed, and stop taking money from the NRA, because children are dying, and so is the future of America as a result. I, I just want to say something I've heard a lot is the word gun rights, and that has the connotation that we are trying to strip people of their rights. Well, first of all, we have the right to live, and second of all, here at March for Our Lives, at least for me, we, we don't want to take the guns away from Americans. My father is a police officer, he has guns, and I understand that having concealed weapons is good for protecting yourself. But an AR-15 is not needed to protect your house from robbers. It's not needed to hunt bears. An AR-15 is a weapon of war. And a 19-year-old who is mentally challenged and has problems was able to buy an AR-15 easily. We don't want to disarm America. We want to make America have to work for their weapons, and we have to make sure that everybody who has this kind of power in their hands has been cleared to have it. Because if Nicholas Cruz had gone through five minutes with any medical professional, they would have said, this person does not need an AR-15, this person needs a counselor. And Alex 17 people would not have needed graves. Alex, your own senator, Marco Rubio, says that more gun laws won't do anything, that uh, anyone who wants to commit violence is going to find a way to get a gun. If you think that, Senator Rubio, then change the way it's easier to get a gun, okay? If you think it's too easy to get a gun, do something about it. Make it not easier to get a gun. March 24th on the March for Our Lives is only the beginning. This is the first march, but I can guarantee it will not be the last. We will be marching for the 17 we lost at our school. We will be marching for everyone we lost at the Newtown Sandy Hook shooting, at Columbine, at Virginia Tech, in San Bernardino, Orlando, at the Pulse shooting, and at Las Vegas. This is only the beginning, and March 24th, things are going to change. It's not our job to tell you, Senator Rubio, how to protect us. The fact that we even have to do this is appalling. Our job is to go to school, learn, and not take a bullet. You need to figure this out. That's why you were unfortunately elected. 
Your job is to protect us, and our blood is on your hands. Well, I know that millions of people are watching to see uh, where you take this movement. You've already got tens of thousands of followers online, uh, and we'll be watching to see if you're able to change a pretty entrenched political dynamic here in Washington. Thank you so much to the five of you for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I'm Nancy Cordes, and this has been Face the Nation. Today's guests were Representative Trey Gowdy, Senator Tim Scott, Senator Chris Coons, and John Podesta. We also sat down with Senator Jeff Flake, Representative Ed Royce, Representative Ileana Rose-Leighton, and Representative Carly Dent. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital edition wherever you get your books. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. John Stewart here. Unbelievably exciting news. My new podcast, The Weekly Show. We're going to be talking about the uh, election, economics, ingredient to bread ratio on sandwiches. Listen to The Weekly Show with John Stewart wherever you get your podcasts.